0: Today's podcast. I'm your host, Craig Eskowitz, and this is the It's on Wealth Tech Best of 2019. Man, I can't believe it's been a year since I launched this podcast. But in the spirit and tradition of annual best ofs, we've made a best of the podcast from 2019. And my staff and I poured over the audio and pulled some of the best clips from the year from the episodes and compiled them here for your listening pleasure. So starting off the highlights is a clip from my very first episode, and it's with the great Joel Bruckenstein, producer of the T3 Advisor and Enterprise Conferences, which, by the way, the Advisor Conference is coming up soon, next month, uh, February 16th to the 20th in San Diego. I recommend that everyone should attend if you can. So, in this uh, clip, I'm asking Joel what he thinks of the trend of technology vendors focusing more on client experience and emotional intelligence in their latest releases. Let's listen to his response.
1: I think it's a little more difficult to be innovative in our industry strictly, uh, because it's such a re- regulated industry. And so that's been holding us back to some extent. But I do think we're starting to see a change. You're seeing firms hire people that have a lot of experience in the UI, you see people hiring big firms in our industry hiring data scientists and behavioral finance people and so they're moving in the right direction but because we're such a regulated industry and because advisors as a rule tend to be a little bit more resistant to change than some uh some other industries and certainly the retail industry it just takes a little bit longer
0: True. The th- another trend I saw was, which I've been waiting for for a while, is there's more products that are actually taking advantage of artificial intelligence, different components of it, rather than just talking about it. They're actually putting them into, into real products. a uh, specific product I wanted to talk about was the in- inviso facial recognition. Yep. Do you see that as another like start of a trend? Will, will more products be copying this and using different aspects of AI to enhance the uh, uh, the advisor experience?
1: It's pretty funny. I wrote about them, I want to say, like three years ago when I first came across them, and I was very impressed with what they were doing. But clearly they've matured a bit, and I think they are just one of a number of products um, that are looking to incorporate both biometrics and artificial intelligence in creative ways. So there's a lot of products out there and a lot of firms that are experimenting with artificial intelligence from some of the biggest custodians down to the startups. But I think, again, we're just at really the tip of the iceberg there. I think over the next 12 to 18 months, you'll see a lot more of that. You know, you have things like chatbots. TD has them built into both their, some of their retail and their advisor-facing things. And there's a number of startups that are looking to incorporate artificial intelligence into the end-user experience. Mm-hmm.
0: And this next clip is from my interview with Simon Roy, president and CEO of Gemstep. Gemstep makes some great uh, digital advice solutions. They have done very well in the banking space. And uh, they've recently announced the acquisition of Red Black Software, makers of some fantastic portfolio rebalancing software. My question to Simon was about digital advice and whether it's going to be more integrated with core banking processes or will it remain a separate silo?
2: The digital advice um, with banks have gone, well, digital advice in general has gone through a number of phases. Um, you know, obviously the, the direct to consumers, the, the barbarians at the gate essentially went out and said, uh, digital only is, is the path to uh, providing wealth management to, you know, to the mass affluent broad swath of, of the market. Uh, and they quickly discovered that uh, two things. One, the cost of acquisition, very expensive, establishing a brand. Secondly, they discovered that um, in most cases and for most segments clients want to know that they have access to an advisor they have access to advice when needed um, and that pivoted to what what I would call uh, a model which is um, a b2 b2 C model which is uh, slap you know slap your logo on my Robo I'll take care of your clients uh, that was uh, appealing for a few firms who wanted to get out quickly but not a sustainable model that truly added value to the banking institutions and what gemstep is essentially focused on is a model where we provide a technology service to the banks to help bring their value proposition to life uh, to ensure that they control um, their clients their client experience uh, data models um, and other elements such that uh, we are helping them add value through a uh, digital platform in, in, in making wealth management accessible to a broad swath of their client base. With that as a goal, um, we, can't, uh, we can't build an effective platform that doesn't integrate with the core banking portal, that doesn't integrate with the mobile apps that the banks have and have great success in penetration. And so the GemSip solution um, with, with with our primary bank clients will have single sign-on straight through to the banking portal. So a client logging in to see their checking account or credit card can access their wealth management accounts there, but um, more importantly, can view and, and uh, click on advertisements for, w- within the portal to... Uh, um, you know, to to go through a goal-based flow so that they can uh, uh, access the bank's wealth management service. So access to the bank portal. Secondly, we want to make sure that the client, when they go through, when they go through the flow, it doesn't feel like they're being handed off to a different institution. It needs to feel as if it is a straight handle from the, you know, from the portal to the wealth management service. And so the branding look and feel, et cetera, is is very similar um, and aligned with the branding of the, of the bank. Secondly, we, we implement um, uh, a mechanism where we will take the data from the bank um, and make sure that that data is pre-filled through the Gemstep flow so the client coming through goes, oh, they have my address, they know my name, they know my age, I just need to verify and then add um, add information about my retirement goal or my risk tolerance. And so it's low friction to go from the portal to the wealth management flow, and a feeding, uh, you know, sort of a natural view of, of the, the, the service in terms of branding, but probably more importantly, they feel as if they are known, and the bank is building on the relationship as opposed to handing them off to you know essentially a new relationship and so that that really eases um, the transition increases conversion uh, and helps not just in the profiling but also in the onboarding, because the onboarding is made all the simpler with information um, uh, you know including address, including spouse, including. You know, partner, including um, uh, social security and other information um, that, you know, that essentially makes it a quick and seamless experience to sign up for wealth management. So that's the bank portal side. Um, the mobile app side, we, we, we take a very similar approach, which is uh, we offer choice to the, the bank institution uh, as to how they want to implement mobile. And there are a few critical pieces. First is, if they if they want to create a native um, GemStep integration to their mobile app, we offer APIs which they can use to build a, a client experience which is um, you know essentially the same as the client experience for the other bank apps. And so through API they access the full GemStep infrastructure and they can do it in a way that the client experience and the flow on the, on the mobile is consistent with the web flow. And so a client can go from a mobile initiation to the web and back, or a web initiation of a relationship to a, mo- a mobile experience where they can perhaps confirm that their account is open or that a rebalance has occurred. Uh, and so that, that's part of our strategy of making sure that the Jamstep solution is embedded within the bank's um, existing processes and infrastructure, as opposed to a bolt-on on on the side of the business.
0: Now we're going to move away from bank processes and talk about portfolio rebalancing. In this clip uh, from my interview with Ryan Donovan, VP of BizDev at Orion Advisor Tech, we were talking a lot about uh, rebalancing best practices, tax management, and efficiency uh, with their new Eclipse rebalancer that they uh, launched a couple years back, and which I covered on my blog. Uh, in this clip, I asked Ryan about the difference between household-level rebalancing and single-account rebalancing.
3: It really comes back to the tax-efficient rules that need to be established. So within an account, it's very straightforward. I have uh, an account and we're gonna target these asset classes or we're gonna target these securities at defined weights. And we're gonna give tolerance bands that'll tell me when I need to trade that client's portfolio to stay aligned with that target allocation. Adding the complexity of grouping several accounts together uh, it really is going to require the type of logic an advisor might run through on their own if they were manually deciding which assets should be held in which accounts. So for example, if I had wanted to target my income-producing investments in a tax-deferred or a tax-exempt account, I can make that prioritization. So in our system, on the buy or the sell side, we have a prioritization between taxable, tax-exempt, and tax-deferred. So for each asset class, each subclass and asset category, uh, we do give our advisors the ability to add one, two, or three, or none in each of those account types. So as the system is looking at the securities that should be held in the model, they know where to prioritize income-producing securities. If the tax-deferred account is prioritized to hold income-producing securities, we're going to invest in that first. But if it's insufficient, has insufficient cash to hold the full allocation of an asset class like fixed income, for example, we're going to then look to the second priority account type. And that type of logic when structured at a firm level can be pushed down to all of the client's portfolios to make rebalancing and scale very efficient. One of the things that we've built in in the preferences is the ability to use that logic and apply it either at the uh, firm level or at the portfolio level So they do have the ability to add customization for individual clients, which is one of the things that some advisors push back on when they hear the word rebalance, they feel that they lose client level customization there. And so when we built our tax preferences into account, we wanted to have that portfolio level capability.
0: That makes a lot of sense. How, with the, the, among the 1,800 RIA clients, can you share how many are using Eclipse?
3: I don't have a good statistic on that today. I know the number is over 100, um, but uh, I'll have to get somebody else to reply on that.
0: No worries. With um, the ones that are using Eclipse, how often are they rebalancing and Uh, In general, if you know that, and and do most of them do calendar-based rebalancing, where they say, "Well, every quarter we're going to rebalance, or every year we're going to rebalance," or is it mostly
3: drift-based? Yeah, I think coming back to what I was mentioning about going from more account-level rebalancing and trading to household-level trading, that's also where we've seen a trend as technology has really evolved and made trading more scalable on a more frequent basis. uh, We we've seen people go from quarterly rebalancing to drift-based. Uh, alerts that drive the rebalancing timeline. Um, So we do have both as an option. We have both the uh, calendar-based settings. If an advisor wants to have an auto rebalance on a quarterly basis, they can program that in. But the overwhelming majority of our clients are using uh, drift-based alerts to notify them when portfolios will need to be rebalanced.
0: Are there some uh, rebalancing best practices you've noticed that when clients are coming to you and say, hey, we, you know, we love Eclipse, but what's the best way to use it? Uh, what do you recommend?
3: So we have an extensive training library that's available for our clients. We also have an onboarding that goes into training them on all of the features available, whether that's going to be portfolio construction, model construction and maintenance, cash uh, settings and preferences uh, in terms of the best practice practices uh, the majority of clients that work with our rebalancer aren't just looking to get their client portfolios back within the asset allocation targets they're looking for the trading system to help them with their daily workflows and so they're looking for the rebalancer to help them to fund distributions in a tax efficient way. Uh, they're looking to spend new money and allocate into their model. They're looking for uh, any portfolios that could have tax-loss harvesting opportunities and have the system automatically identify those. And with one of the preferences that we've given them in their model construction, they can have a tax-loss harvesting alternative automatically proposed so they build the cell and they have the offsetting buy. So in terms of the features or the best practices, uh, it's really implementing the rebalancer not just for an automated rebalance. It's implementing it in a way that it'll help you build scale around those workflows.
0: This next clip, uh, I talked to two of the executives from United Planners, which is a unique broker dealer uh, based out in Arizona and that they are uh, majority advisor owned. Uh, I really like these guys. They've got some innovative uh, thinking, and they've got a great technology platform. Uh, So I spoke to Aaron Spradlin, the chief information officer, and Billy Oliverio, the chief marketing officer, again, both for United Planners. And what I liked about their uh, platform, it's open architecture, but built on top of a lot of, uh, of the best of breed applications. It's built on top of Orion Advisor. They integrate with uh, Money Girl Pro, eMoney, Redtail, all the big applications, but they customized a lot of the interfaces. They went completely paperless way before most firms are even thinking about it. They created their own data store and their, a custom document management overlay that provides their advisors, I think, with an extra edge over their competitors, which is what it's all about. And in this clip, I asked them, what's the biggest challenge that they had to overcome when developing their United Planners platform?
4: Well, I would say the biggest challenge was uh, it was in the early days we made the right decision architecturally, which is decision number one. Number two, we built a minimum viable product, and that was a really great decision also. But as you know, over time it becomes uh, it becomes you have to start to decide where you're going to continue to invest and where you're not. Uh, That was a big challenge, you know. Which which Billy, you you make the same uh, you can do. In the old, you can do anything, you can't do everything, right? Sure. Right, and so we had to start deciding where we're going to invest and not invest, and those are very difficult decisions. So one of the things we got to a point, we said, let's go ahead and build something we call the critical initiative process. So uh, about three years ago, we started to um, engage internally and saying, okay, we've got to make some really important decisions going forward now. We've got a lot of infrastructure, we've got a lot of uh, built-in supply chain, but complexities emerged. Um, you know, stability has emerged as a challenge. And now you got reinvesting in that infrastructure because it's been many years. So let's start building into our DNA how we're going to how we're going to how we're going to make decisions. Let's build a process for making decisions that we can all agree upon. So we started something called the Critical Initiative Process, which then was tied into the business plan, and we would meet monthly as a leadership team and really talk about you know where's the investment this month, where's the investment next month, where's the investment of the next quarter, and how are we tracking against what's going on in the market. And so having a process to do that, and really the process was about saying no. The hardest thing is how you build a process to say no, not how you build a process to say yes. Billy, you wanna to speak to that? Oh, I, I was yeah. just nodding my head over here, Craig, saying yes, we have a problem saying no, <laughs> yes, right? So uh, naturally, we want to do everything. Well, we were so good at it. We it, were so good at building. Our biggest problem was we were saying yes to everything. Yeah. But then all of a sudden, that becomes its own problem. So then you have to decide mm-hmm. how you're going to actually grow healthy once you get to a certain size. And we've now become, I think they define us as the the smallest large broker dealer in the nation. And now we're uh, we're really um, our capacity, our size really required a new way of um, being innovative by learning to say no, uh, which was taking the innovation out of the hands of the innovators and putting it into the hands of the business decision makers and tying it to the finances of the firm. Uh, And that became a critical next step to to how to tie those two things together and still be innovative. And that's the process of saying no, which is one of the hardest processes of the company to do.
5: Yeah. You know, I, I'll just make one other comment to add to that is, you know, I think if we take a step back, look at this kind of in a, a late layman's terms, uh, the, the approach was just as we preach to our advisors, you know, um, outsource, do what you do best and outsource the rest. That's right. right. That's, that's a quote that one of my colleagues uses, give him credit. I, I can't take credit for that, but it, but it actually makes a lot of sense do what you do best, and outsource the rest. And so we tell our advisors to do that with their practice so that they could be efficient, scalable, um, more productive, more profitable. And so we actually practice that too. Uh, and that's where we, in the spirit of this very conversation, is how we redesigned our system, how we did it in a fashion to partner better with our service providers, so that we are actually outsourcing you know, some of those heavy lifts. And we're not trying to build a system that says, build it and they will come. The advisors will, you know, conform to how our system has been designed so that they do it this way. No, we've done it in a way that's flexible, and advisor-centric, client-centric, and it does have that spirit of outsourcing. You know, just like Aaron, we covered. You know, um, if, if they use Red Tail, we're not going to build a CRM. We're not in the market of building a CRM, but we'll build our system to interact well with the CRM or a financial planning system. Or a portfolio management system, or any of our REA custodians, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, I think that's kind of a good, I guess, kind of way to summarize the discussion is United Planners, as being the biggest yet smallest broker-dealer RIA in the industry, is because we've done it in a way that's very, I would say, intelligent and in, in the smart use of our time and resources to. Deepen our relationships with our service providers right. so that we are outsourcing. And, and I mean, that's a good example of like our open architecture. I mean, if, if 90% of our business is done away from Pershing LLC, well, then our staff here in the home office to open accounts, service accounts, trade accounts did not grow exponentially because we're leveraging the service teams as well as their technology at TD Ameritrade, which is our largest RAA custodian, bigger, twice, almost twice as big as our Pershing LLC clearing firm relationship. So we've done this in a very intelligent way to maximize our production by uh, having a minimal amount of resources here at our home office. So I just want to kind of add that in there as kind of some color and context for the big picture of everything that we're talking about.
0: Back last August, I was uh, invited to attend the LPL Financial Advisor Conference out in beautiful San Diego, California. And while I was there, I had the privilege of interviewing two of their senior executives at LPL, Rob Petman, EVP of Product Strategy, and Kirby Horan Adams, EVP of Product Management. Great conversation, a lot of talking about their changes to their client works platform that 15,000 advisors are using uh, their new version, version two or version three—I forget which one it is—is uh, is significant leaps and bounds above. Uh, better functionality, better user experience. I uh, got a lot of demos of the different functionality in it. I uh, really like how what they've done. And in this clip, we were talking about uh, models and uh, the model management functionality of ClientWorks and how it helps advisors uh, differentiate themselves and uh, do their investment management. CDC Model Hub.
6: How many different model providers do you have? I don't, I don't actually know the exact number. It's a lot. Mm-hmm. So you're thinking about like, the number of different strategists that mm-hmm. we have available, maybe mm-hmm. 20, probably, 20 different strategists and over 100 different models. Sure, that advisors can pick from. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, it flows right through into client works. That's right.
0: Yeah, the model hub concept is something that every vendor has. When they're doing multi-strategy
6: or UMA, mm-hmm. they need to have that type of technology to bring the models in. Yep. And flow that through. The, the difference here, though, is that when I'm picking strategists, I'm looking at BlackRock, I'm looking at you know MFS or whomever, mm-hmm. and then I see me. Right. And I'm choosing the Can advisors share their models among each other? That's a feature that we're introducing uh, later on mm-hmm. in the year. Uh, so advisors would be able to share it within their firm. So if we're sort of operating as a team, for instance, or mm-hmm. if I'm in an institution, that would be it. But not sort of not a sharing firmers. with a different, no, not across the I can't service. become my
0: own manager. I can't become a manager on your platform as an advisor. Right. No. So, from Model Hub into, with Advisor Sleeve into UMA. So, how does the, when we're talking about MWP, UMA is a subset of MWP.
6: Is it, is, or, are they, or are they parallel systems? So, so, MWP is evolving into a UMA. Hmm. Right now, it's funds and ETFs, hmm. and it's just evolved into being able to have an advisor's portfolio next to a strategist's portfolio hmm. in the same account. Sure. And as we look at the roadmap, we're expanding the number of the different types of securities that we're putting in there. Mm-hmm. So we're going to go with equities and SMAs next. So you'll see that right. early next year So when you get into adding tax management services and other things. But we're not going to stop there. We'll actually add on annuities and alternative investments. Uh, because in some of those classes, there's some really unique opportunities. Again, my guiding yeah. principle is to make managing money easier think about structured products and how that might react with a, with a trading system. I think it's about that nightmare. all the time. When
0: <laughs> will you, will you, you put your annuities into the account, so this is something that's been tried many times, is mm-hmm. in a UMA, mm-hmm. put an annuity in a sleeve mm-hmm. so it can be managed like the other SMAs. Mm-hmm. Will you be able to do that or will the, will the annuity still sit on the side and then somehow be aggregated in the back end? I can't go into too many details on that just yet. That's uh, it's in development. Okay. If I can make a suggestion. You want it inside, if you can. No doubt. Because right? uh, that's a lot, a lot of problems advisors have is that you have to swivel chair or screen mm-hmm. toggle between their annuity screens and their wealth screens, or their insurance right. screens and their wealth screens. And it's, it's, it's really separate procedure, separate onboarding, separate processes. So the more you can consolidate that and make it one experience,
6: the better. And we would agree, right? Again, as you think about the sort of maniacal focus towards making managing money easier, you want to be able to get it all done in one place and have mm-hmm. the most amount of convenience. If it's not convenient to have it in there, why have it in there? A maniacal focus. That's right. <laughs> We're maniacs, about the advisor. We experience. are maniacs. <laughs>
0: <laughs> with uh, so with your account opening process, how long does it take an advisor to open an account on ClientWorks
7: today? Mm-hmm. In the in the existing system, it's just over nine minutes on mm-hmm. average.
0: Which and sounds good. You would think. I mean, nine minutes is it's not like terrible. A, that's terrible. It's right? not
7: terrible, but of course we want it to be faster, right? right? We wanna we wanna make it even easier for them, especially with things that we can see our pain points for them. Mm. You know, rekeying of data and, and right some of those fields that they didn't need and the way that they go about the process. And so by doing that we did cut it by about sixty percent. So the test the test advisors that are in the new tool right mm. now are doing it about four.
0: Which is crazy fast.
7: Which is crazy right?
0: fast. And Then you, so you came out with the, the, the they, if this gets rolled out to the entire advisor force, it'll say four million minutes. Correct. Which is how many years? Eight. <laughs> eight years. Eight years. That's eight man years, or, or woman years, of, of time will be saved. And that's because time is money and advisors only have so many hours in a day.
7: Right, and we need to help drive the efficiencies so they mm-hmm. can go out and focus on growth and focus on additional value propositions for their clients. Mm-hmm.
0: And I have to say that this is definitely a, a wealth management crowd because that got applause. It when did. you told them we're saying we're going to cut it from nine to four. Right,
7: they're thinking, they were, about the all this they
0: can do. Like, what will I do with all my free time? It's, it, it's, but it's true because that they, then they're here when if they're coming here to beautiful San Diego and spending a couple of days with you, they want value. They, they do. They want. They want to to come away with something.
7: They do. They do. They're here to learn. They're here to understand what we're doing mm-hmm. and. I think we're really excited that we have all these new capabilities to show them and talk Mm -hmm. to them about what we have today and what the roadmap is for tomorrow Mm -hmm. to kind of bring them on the journey with us.
0: How did Morningstar build one of the biggest financial technology businesses in the country? Quietly, uh, they've built this. Uh, They've got over 120,000 advisors using their tools in one, one way or another, or their data, and uh, that's quite a bit. And I spoke to Dermot Omahony, uh, Global Head of Software at Morningstar, and I recorded this clip at Morningstar's annual conference, which was held this year in the hometown of Chicago, uh, one of my favorite cities. So this question I asked, uh, Dermot, what were some of the things you learned from that uh, the experience, and, and how has your, your business changed uh, being such a big technology provider?
8: Like we we use it for we use the data for trend analysis, like use usage, mm-hmm. product improvements, and things like that. Unlike some other folks yeah. in the space, we don't like mine that data. Uh, in right.
0: To well, you, well, you could do it to make things better. Uh, no, I'm we use saying, it to I'm make it better. No, but
8: data. it's no, but it's like basically yeah. these advisors are in. They want to. They generally quick turnaround, mm-hmm. right? So these advisors, it's like going to the doctor to a certain extent, mm-hmm. right? You want to go in. They want to serve a need. They want mm-hmm. to move you. Out and they want to go and right. see their next client. Mm-hmm. And so, having everything available in a very easy-to-find and easy-to-navigate type of way mm-hmm. is very valuable to these folks. And we're in the process of actually redesigning the, the user experience for Advisor Workstation, which is a pretty big deal for us, actually, considering the usage. Uh, we also have a, it's also used in Canada and in India, so it's actually a global product. And so we're currently refreshing it using some of our new design standards that we brought to bear in other parts of the business. So that's going to be something we're going to probably start talking about a little bit later in the year.
0: So what can you share about the size of the technology business?
8: Yeah, obviously we're a publicly traded company, so uh, a lot of the information is online. But, you know, at an overall Morningstar, we hit a billion dollars in revenue last year. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the Morningstar software business is a relatively substantial percentage of that.
0: Yeah, so if that was a standalone business, you might be one of the largest technology providers We're in We'd be pretty close to West that, Atlanta. I think. Yeah, yeah. In terms of revenue.
8: Just because of revenue, and, and yeah. not even just revenue, number of people served. Mm-hmm. So as I said, we've got- Desktops. Desktops, we've got over 120,000 mm-hmm. advisor workstation and desktops, uh, both here mm-hmm. Canada and uh, India is where we've uh, rolled it out. Uh, we have Morningstar Direct. I think we publish that number. It's around 15,000 uh, desktops uh, out there, and that's a global product uh, used both within the wealth management space and the asset management space. Mm-hmm. And then we serve an untold number of advisors through our development tools. And honestly, we don't untold know. Untold number. I, because we don't know how many are there, how many yeah. are licensed, because we do enterprise level uh,
0: licensing mm-hmm.
8: uh, for these folks. And so, you know, if we license to a large firm. Everyone in that firm is
0: all oh, right, points. gotcha.
8: So we don't know exactly how many people are using it, and so it's a pretty it could be unlimited. unlimited. It could be unlimited. We could we could claim pretty much every advisor and, mm. and wealth management uh, right. uh, globally at this point.
0: But that's a, that's a very interesting point that, that your technology business is an un you know un, not unknown but really flying below the radar.
8: Yeah. Well, I think it's more like the, the Morningstar Research brand is mm. so strong and it's so important yeah. and yeah. rightly so. That the software was kind of originally a, considered just another delivery channel for yes. the research and the data. But if you look at companies like Faxet, who are you know a bigger company, I think they are very, I'm not sure what their market cap is now, but it, it's pretty mm-hmm. substantial. I think it's more than Morningstar's, right? They are a software desktop that delivers IP and data mm-hmm. to you know very similar to the Morningstar software business. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you kind of want equivalents, that would be. A that is a good one. Uh, but we've talked a little bit more. So, for example, you know, we, we've 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 got a little bit more outreach in regards to folks like yourself, mm-hmm. and kind of communicating what we do and how yeah. we do it, and you know, very much let's pretty,
0: get the word yeah. Out.
8: Well, I, I think it's I think we do some pretty good stuff. Like right? then, and, mm-hmm. and enabling advisors and wealth managers and asset managers to access Morningstar research in a way mm-hmm. that is sort of a Morningstar approved manner from a visualization and an analytic reporting perspective. I think has value. Uh,
0: so do you think, let me interrupt you for a second, so BlackRock wouldn't be a competitor to yours because they're an asset manager, but they're, one of their goals is to derive 30% of their revenue from technology.
8: Yeah, well, BlackRock Solutions, uh, they are, uh, you know, we, we, like, like mm-hmm. we, most of Morningstar's software, if you want to call them competitors, are also Morningstar's uh, customers in other ways.
0: There's a lot of competition.
8: A lot of, and you know this in this space. Right, mm-hmm. so even in, it doesn't really matter who you are because of the fact that we are the premier provider of uh, research and data to all of the technology providers in the industry. The, 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 the reality is that even if we may compete against someone in the morning, we're partnering in the evening. By All Accounts is a great example of this. So, yeah. By All Accounts is our uh, account aggregation yeah. service, yes, it is. Uh, really focused on wealth management, mm-hmm. and you know, again, the industry, all you hear about is Yodel A and you know, some of the Quovo. Little, and, Quovo and you know, until they got bought and now it's plaid and whoever mm-hmm. else it is. But, you know, by all accounts provides aggregation services, I would think, to the majority of the portfolio accounting platforms mm-hmm. that are out there. Yeah. And so, you know, it's sort of one of these things where we will and but then those portfolio accounting platforms may compete with Office as well. True. But you know, we, we managed to we're pretty good at like separating church and state here at Morningstar, mm-hmm. right? Between, you know, our, our analysts mm-hmm. and like you know, our analysts rate the, the, the asset managers, we sell software to asset managers, we sell data to asset managers, and so we've been pretty good at kind of keeping kind of independence. Mm-hmm. And we don't we don't we don't play any games with that and we think mm-hmm. it's very important. So, for example, with the model marketplace we just released, right. we don't take any fees from asset managers to put their strategies on our platform.
0: Which is a differentiator.
8: Well I, well, I think it's what's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not even a case of it being a business imperative, but if you listen to Kunal Kapoor, our CEO's mm-hmm. uh, opening remark. I heard those. We think this is pretty important. Like, you know, from someone who runs a business, one would think that we'd be always looking to drive additional revenue. As a public company. As a a public company. But the reality is you get yourself into sticky situations over time. And especially given that Morningstar's brand is really built around independence and is built around our research and our data, you know, passing up you know, little revenue opportunities right. here, or there are or even right. large revenue opportunities. If you see, what, you but know,
0: still, relative to your you overall do. revenue, it's it's small. Well, it's, it's not going to move least. the needle very. It probably much.
8: not. But it opens. You know, it's 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 not the right thing to do.
0: And that's a wrap. And this is Craig Esquitz again. I uh, hope you enjoyed this compilation best of episode. Best of the, it's on Wealth podcast from 2019, some of my favorite episodes. Please remember to hit the subscribe button uh, wherever you listen to podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you are. Give us a five-star review and subscribe as well. Check out my blog at ezra EzraGroupLLC.com. Look forward to seeing you more in 2020. Take care.